0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to 1 Timothy, a chapter that you thought we were done with, but we're not. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we are just going to focus in on verse 16. Pastor Russell last week very ably dealt with verses 14, 15, and 16, but 16 is such a glorious verse that we wanted to linger over it a bit longer. So let me read verse 16 for us, reminding you, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Beloved of God, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So let's ask the Lord this evening together to use his word by the Spirit to make simpletons like us wise. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you have spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days... You have spoken to us in your Son, who is the incarnate Word. And so we pray this evening that you would open my mouth as your servant to proclaim that Word in the power of the Spirit. And we also pray that this same Spirit would open the hearts of the hearers here this evening to receive your holy gospel and to write on their hearts your holy law even as you promised that you would. We ask all of this, gracious Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, we looked and answered the question that Paul answers in verses 14 and 15, primarily verse 15, what is the church? And we saw that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. It is the Household of God. And tonight, what we want to reflect upon is well, what is it exactly that makes the church the church? And what we're going to see here is what makes the church the church is our confession, our confession of the great mystery of godliness. And what is the great mystery of godliness? Well, I'll give it to you right up front because you see it in the hymn here that Paul quotes and cites. The mystery of godliness is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us so that we might be reconciled to God. And so if you take away Christ and you take away our confession, guess what? The church is no longer the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is no longer the household of God. And so we are who we are as the church because of who Christ is and what he has done. And this is our confession. And so tonight, very simply, I'm not going to give you an outline because there's six points that we're going to look at. Guess why? Because there's six stanzas in this hymn or this confession that the church makes. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these six realities or truths about the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, And what that means for us as the church. And at the end of each one of these six realities we're going to look at, I'm just going to briefly make a point of application. And I feel like I have to do that. Don't worry, it'll be very brief. It's not going to be a very long sermon. But I feel like I have to do that because what is the mystery here? It's the mystery of godliness. It's the mystery of how we ourselves actually, by God's grace, become godly. And so these realities about who Jesus is and what he has done have huge implications for our lives and so we're going to at least scratch the surface on some of that as we look at these six realities but before we get to the first gospel reality here look at how Paul sets this up in verse 16 he says great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness and as i've already mentioned this was likely a hymn or a confession or a creed that the church during these days would have confessed. They would have sung as they gathered together, much as we recited earlier this evening the Apostles' Creed, saying this is what we believe, this is what we confess. Well, this is what the church would confess, this is what they would sing. And what is this song concerning? Well, Paul tells us it's the great mystery of godliness. And the great mystery of godliness is not a what, it's a who. The great mystery of godliness is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this hymn or this confession is in regards to him. And it's a great mystery. It's glorious. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. And I think it's important that we understand that it's a mystery for two reasons. First of all, it's a mystery because it was not super clear in the Old Testament That it was God himself, or at least we don't have the kind of clarity now in the New Testament. We didn't have that in the Old Testament. That it was God himself who was going to come and be the promised seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. It wasn't super clear that it was going to be God in the flesh who was going to do this. And so now this great mystery is revealed. That it's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who was taken on flesh to be the promised seed of the woman. But the second reason that this is a mystery, and I hope that we apply this as we're walking through this hymn together tonight and keep it in mind, the reason it's a great mystery is because we cannot completely comprehend and wrap our heads around this reality. Indeed, the hypostatic union, how there can be two natures, a human nature and a divine nature in the one person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is beyond our complete comprehension. And so we confess this is a great mystery. That even though we set aside an entire sermon just to deal with verse 16, we're still just going to be scratching the surface. And it's actually dangerous for us to try to push beyond what Scripture tells us. We're able to say a lot about Christ's incarnation. But there are a lot of questions we just can't answer. Why? Because it is a great mystery that we confess. So let that serve as a bit of a warning for us now as we dive into these six realities regarding the God-man Jesus Christ. And so what do we see first? The first reality about Christ that we confess is that he was manifested in the flesh. And so what are we confessing here? We're confessing the incarnation. Again, what I've already said, that the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, humbled himself and assumed a human nature, not fallen in every way as ours, yet without sin. Why is that so necessary? Why must he have a human body and a human soul? Because, as the early church fathers were fond of saying, that which is not assumed cannot be saved. And so Christ had to assume our nature, yet without sin, So that he could save us entirely, sufficiently, perfectly. And he has. How? By taking on a human body and a human soul. Paul is abundantly clear on this in numerous places in the New Testament. But just to cite one other example, in Colossians 2 verse 9, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And so this is our only hope, brothers and sisters. We could not be reconciled to God. God had to come and reconcile us to himself. He had to be truly God in order to do that and to pay that penalty that we owed for our sin. And he had to be truly human in order to represent us before God and be a fit substitute for us. And so what we confess here is that The Son of God was manifested in the flesh. His glory revealed to us. Now, that's the truth we confess. What's the application or what implications to our lives does this have? We could spend the rest of the time talking about implications of this, but let me just list one for us. One really important one is if the Son of God glorified God in the flesh... We too, brothers and sisters, are called to do the same thing to glorify Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our bodies. Because as Paul says, we have been bought with a price. And so we're no longer our own. We belong to Him. The ways that we used to live in our bodies as slaves to our passions, slaves to the flesh, the world, and the devil that was not freedom, that was slavery. But now we have been freed. And so not only must we glorify God in our flesh, but it is our privilege to do so out of gratitude and thankfulness for the fact that the Son of God came in the flesh to redeem us. Now Paul goes on to continue the church's confession in mentioning this second reality about Jesus. Notice in the second stanza we read there that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by or justified in or by the Spirit. And so what are we confessing here? Well, I'll show you my cards right up front. I think this is talking about the resurrection. Now you may wonder to yourself, it says vindicated by the Spirit. How did you get to his resurrection from that? Well, let me quote for you Romans chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul says of Christ that it is through the Spirit of holiness. Who's the Spirit of holiness? the Holy Spirit, that he, that is Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, all throughout his ministry, Jesus, there were doubters that didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was, right? I mean, Isaiah 53 very clearly represents to us that we as God's people, we esteemed him what? Stricken, smitten, afflicted by God, cursed by God. And yet it was the will of the Father to crush him. He was doing all his Father's holy will, even though from our perspective, it didn't look like that. Well, so where is he vindicated? Or where is it proved that he is who he said he was? Well, it's in his resurrection. The Father is saying, I am pleased with your work, my son. I accept it. And I have raised you from the dead so that all will know you are my son. And so this is what we confess, this is what we rejoice in together, and it's uniquely a work of the Holy Spirit that Christ was resurrected. Because that's why Peter says, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that Jesus was made alive by the Spirit. And so we confess not only Christ's incarnation, that this happened in time and space and history, but we also confess in time and space and history after he paid the penalty for our sins that we might be reconciled to the Father. He was vindicated by the Holy Spirit and that he was raised from the dead for our justification. So what's the implication of this? What application does this have import into our lives? Again, we could talk about this. There's all sorts of applications. Let me just highlight one in particular. Here's the reality. Since Christ was vindicated in his resurrection... Brothers and sisters, I hope you understand we will be as well. He was shown to be the only begotten of the Father, the Son of God in his resurrection. And since we are united to Christ by grace through faith, when Christ returns the second time and our bodies, which have returned to dust if we're dead when he returns, they will be raised to newness of life. Paul says that with absolute clarity in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Listen to what he says. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And so this is a sure thing. Paul goes on to say, by the way, in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, that this resurrection that happens, this will be the revealing of the sons of God. That's the language he uses. And creation is groaning, longing for that day. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope you take great comfort in this. Is your hope in being vindicated in the eyes of others in this life, as they attack you, as they wrongly accuse you, as they try to say, there's no salvation for him in God, Or are you looking to vindication in this life? Brothers and sisters, our hope is that when Christ returns and our confidence is that when he returns, we will be vindicated in the eyes of the earth. Though now in the eyes of the world, we're regarded as refuse, scum before men. We will be vindicated on that great day, even as the Lord Jesus Christ was. So let us put our hope there in him and his return. So we've looked at the first two realities here, the incarnation, the resurrection, and then thirdly, Paul mentions the historical reality of what we might call Christ's presentation. You see there in the third stanza that he was seen by angels. He was seen by angels. That's what, when I say his presentation, that's what theologians call it. And what Jesus' presentation is, is that God manifested in the flesh, the Son of God manifested in the flesh, was made known to others. Others saw him. Others witnessed this. And the ESV tells you who they think those witnesses are. They think they're angelic beings. Now, I'm going to tell you this. In the Greek, that word there in the New Testament can be translated either angels or humans, apostles. The word is simply messenger. So they're saying, well, we think it's that he was seen by angels. Now we don't deny that he was seen by angels, right? I mean, angels foretell Jesus' birth to Mary and Joseph. They announce his birth to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest. The Messiah has come. They're there ministering to Christ when he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan. They're there strengthening him when he is despairing, it seems. He's Weighed down by the reality of facing the wrath of God for all the sins of the elect. The angels are there witnessing it and strengthening him. They're there when he's resurrected, right? They'll tell the disciples he's not here. And then when he ascends, they're there telling the disciples he's gone. So we know that the angels saw the ministry, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, and you can disagree with me on this, I don't think that's primarily what Paul is talking about here. I think he's talking about the apostles who actually saw what Christ did. He's emphasizing that Christ was seen by them. Now, let me give you a justification for that. It's one thing for me to just assert that, but let me give you a justification for that. I find it very interesting how John, in his first epistle, just highlights this again and again and again the fact that the apostles saw jesus and john in particular saw jesus in the flesh you don't have to turn there but listen to first john chapter one verses one through three that which was from the beginning which we have heard now listen to this which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life The life was made manifest. They're talking about the word made flesh here. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Fourth mention of this. That which we have seen. Fifth mention. And heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see it how clearly he's bending over backwards to say, listen, we saw the Son of God in the flesh. We saw him with our own eyes. Now why is this so important, brothers and sisters? Well, I find it very interesting that how does Paul refer to the apostles? What does he call them in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20? He says they are the church's foundation along with the prophets. Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And so what Paul is saying here, what John is saying in the beginning of his epistle is, listen, you guys believe on our testimony, (laughs) on our eyewitness accounts. And so it's of the utmost importance then, and we confess this in time and space and history, the word made flesh that dwelt among us was seen by the apostles who are then inspired by the Holy Spirit to write out these realities about the one whom they saw. And so you can disagree with me again, but that's my argument for why I think seen by angels here. Again, we don't deny that the angels saw the Christ, but the emphasis here is, is on the fact that the apostles saw him and we are built upon their testimony and believe it by God's grace through faith. So, what's the implication of this? What's a point of application that we can make? Well, since Christ was seen by angels and by human messengers, his apostles, and is now worshipped, we know from Revelation chapter 4 and 5, really the entire book of Revelation, and we know that he is worshipped by the angels and worshipped by the apostles, brothers and sisters, we also ought to worship him as well. And I don't know that we reflect on this often enough as a church, we ought to. But when we gather in corporate worship, we are actually joining those who have gone before us. We're joining the apostles. We're joining the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're joining the angels around the throne, worshiping him. And that is completely and entirely appropriate. That's what we ought to do, is we ought to worship the word made flesh. All right, so Paul goes on and continues to reveal these realities that the church confesses by saying, you see this in the fourth stanza, that he was proclaimed... Among the nations. So we have Christ's incarnation, his resurrection, his presentation, and here we have the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that the good news of Jesus' person and work was declared to all Gentile peoples, all the peoples of the world by the apostles. And why did they do that? They did that because that's what Jesus told them to do, right? Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then we see throughout the New Testament them actually go and do that, don't we? We see that particularly in the book of Acts. So that on the day of Pentecost, what happens? Luke bends over backwards to highlight and emphasize for us. That though he didn't go out to the nations, the nations came to him and heard the proclamation of the gospel. Luke records for us in Acts chapter 2 verse 5 that the people who heard the gospel that day were from every nation under heaven. And so what Jesus said was going to happen actually happened. They would do this, that the gospel would be proclaimed. But that's just the beginning. Because then we go through the rest of the book of Acts, and what do we see? He's preached then not just in Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. By the way, with Paul even preaching the gospel where in Acts chapter 19? Ephesus. Which church is Timothy overseeing as Paul is writing this letter to him? He's overseeing the Ephesian church, isn't he? And so we see the gospel going forward, and it doesn't just stop there. The gospel still going out to the nations today, to this very day. And so what do we see? We confess historically that this happened and that this continues to happen. So brothers and sisters, what's the application for us? Since Jesus was and is proclaimed among the nations, let us also join in that proclamation to our co-workers, our family members that don't know him our neighbors, everyone that we get the opportunity to open our mouths, do we understand that's why we've been left here as a church, is to make known the excellencies of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And we're to do that here in Bakersfield or wherever we find ourselves, and that's why we send out missionaries, isn't it? To the ends of the earth that they might proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we confess that happened in time and space and history with this confession here, this song, and it's still happening today. Paul continues to mention the church's confession here by, notice the fifth stanza, that he was then believed on in the world. The Lord Jesus Christ was believed on in the world, so we could refer to this as Christ's reception, that he was received And believed by many who heard. And again, we can see this very clearly in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, verse 47, we read that the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. And we have that recorded throughout the rest of the book of Acts, don't we? As the gospel goes forward, the elect, those whom the Father in love gave to the Son in eternity past, who the Son died for, not just the opportunity, but actually secured their salvation, they come to believe. I don't know about you, but I get a little upset when I see the bumper sticker or the license plate thing on cars. You ever seen this one? Give Jesus a chance. He died for the opportunity. I need to like pull over just so I can calm myself down. What in the world? What an inept, weak savior that would be. He's just up there pining, you know, I died for the opportunity, won't you please give me a chance? No, the Father gave his elect to the Son. And Jesus died on the cross, lived his life, intercedes now with each and every one of you here in mind. The elect in mind, you specifically by name. And so we rejoice in this reality that he was believed on in the world. That's true of us. We were in the world, lost and dead, in transgressions and sins, and we were brought from death to life by the work of the Holy Spirit in accord with the eternal decree of God. And so now we believe. Brothers and sisters, I hope the application here is really, really simple for you. Again, there's a lot we could talk about, but we should be sharing the gospel in the confidence of knowing that some are going to be saved. It's hard as you're getting to know people. Right? Confess. I'll confess. I meet with certain people and I think there's no way they're going to be saved. How terrible of me to say that. It's miraculous that I believe. But you understand what I'm saying. From a human standpoint, it seems impossible. And so it's easy to get discouraged as you're sharing the gospel to think, I am just wasting my time here. And this is when we go back to the promise. And remember, he was believed on in the world. He saved ones like you and I. And his elect are out there. And so I wouldn't engage in evangelism. I wouldn't want to send out our missionaries if we didn't know that there would be fruit, that the harvest is abundant. And so we're praying for the Lord to raise up more to go out and gather the harvest. But we should do this, share the gospel, understanding that those whom the Father gave to the Son in love will be saved And that should give us a great boost of confidence to continue to walk in obedience. So that's the fifth stanza, the fifth reality. Finally, sixthly, in the sixth stanza there, we see that Paul mentions the reality that Jesus was then taken up in glory. Taken up in glory. So what are we confessing here? We're confessing that Christ ascended to the Father. We're confessing his ascension here. Now, I'll let you know that there's been a little dispute throughout the ages amongst the church as to whether this is talking about Christ's ascension or his second coming because one of the main arguments for why it looks like it would be the second coming of Christ is because it's at the very end of the hymn so it seems appropriate that the climax would be and then he's taken up in glory he comes back and he's shown in all of his glory and power and he makes all things new but I don't buy it now, if you were to say it's a chronology, then yes, the sixth stanza would need to go before the fourth stanza, right? Because he wasn't proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world before his ascension. It was after. But let's not get hung up on chronology. I don't think that's the point of the confession. I think the point of the confession here is, is relaying to us things that happened in the life of Christ, his person and work that are essential to our salvation. Now, not everything is here, but the essentials are here. Let me give you the main reason why I think this is talking about his ascension. You'll have to take my word for it unless you read Greek, but the verb here for take up is the exact same verb in the Greek that's used in Acts chapter 1, when Christ is taken up before the eyes of the apostles. We read that the angel's Tell the disciples in Acts 1.11, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Which seems like an appropriate place for me to say, Listen, we're not denying the second coming of Christ here. We're just saying that this in particular is talking about his ascension. That he then ascended to the Father's right hand. Having accomplished everything that the Father gave him to do, Having fulfilled all the promises of the Father, that he's the seed of the woman, the promised seed of David, he goes to sit on his throne at the Father's right hand forever and to send the Holy Spirit, which is what we then see in the book of Acts. And so what do we confess? His ascension is essential, brothers and sisters. And so this is an essential part of our confession. And what's the the application from this? Well, Now let's get to the second coming of Christ. As the angel said, he will return the same way that he went. Even as he ascended into the clouds, he's going to come a second time with the clouds in glory to make all things new. And so again, is that where our hope is? And do we rejoice to know now, as we're waiting for Christ to return, that because he's ascended, brothers and sisters, this should make your heart leap with joy that we have an advocate with the Father. We have someone, the God-man Jesus Christ, interceding for us in prayer and perfecting our good works so that they're pleasing to the Father because you know even your best works are shot through with weakness and sin and frailty. And so we ought to rejoice that we have an advocate with the Father. And secondly, we ought to be longing for the day When the great mystery of godliness will be seen by us with our own eyes. Though we have not seen him, we love him. And we believe on him by faith. But then on that great day, our eyes will actually see him whom we have loved. And so let us look forward to that day with great anticipation and great joy. So brothers and sisters, I hope you you see with absolute clarity our confession is not a what. It's a who. We confess the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great mystery of godliness. And by God's grace, may we continue to hold fast to our confession, rejoicing in the fact that you understand we would have no relationship with God if it weren't for Christ, the mystery of godliness. And we wouldn't be counted as godly, so that we can have communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit if it weren't for Christ, fulfilling all righteousness for us. And brothers and sisters, we wouldn't become progressively more godly, conformed to the image of Christ, if it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ and his work in us by the Holy Spirit. So from beginning to end, we exist because of Christ. And so he is our great confession. And we say great is that mystery, and we love him. And so may he continue to conform us to his image until he comes again. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.